Let's read Ephesians 6 from verse 10 through the end of 20 together. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Let's pray. Well, Lord, once again, as we gather around your word, we thank you for the clarity of this word. Lord, your word doesn't keep us guessing as to what we're to do. Your word is instructive sharper than a double-edged sword. It, it helps us in all that we need so that we may be equipped for every good work. And so, Lord, as we establish afresh today then what it looks like to run this race well, what it looks like to stand against the devil's schemes, would you open our eyes to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20? Open our eyes, Lord, and take the glory. Amen. C.S. Lewis the author of the Chronicles of Narnia, and so on and so forth, once said this about dealing with evil. He said, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devil and his forces. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. And they themselves are equally pleased with both errors. How true that is. Satan is equally pleased with both errors. When we have an excessive and unhealthy interest in Satan and his forces, Satan loves that because we get distracted. We start to see demons at every turn. Every single thing is demonic. That happens to Christians and unbelievers alike. The reason why we're warned in Deuteronomy against Ouija boards and, and seances and all those type of things is because the Lord knows not only is that the father of lies deceiving you, but also you'll start to become obsessed with that. Satan loves it when we get obsessed with him and his forces. But likewise, he loves it when he can convince us that he doesn't even exist. And I think for many Christians, that's what it's like. They believe theologically that Satan and his forces exist, but functionally, they live as if they don't at all. That there's no such thing as the arts, the doubts of the enemy. There's no such thing as one that is seeking to derail us from our mission. And last week, then, was my attempt to ensure that we not be that. 
that as a local church, we not function as if Satan and his forces do not exist. And instead, we ensure that we're aware of his schemes. Not only his schemes for the world, but his schemes towards us as a local church. See, as I said last week, we really are in a great race. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, that's the scene that we see displayed for us. A great race. You all got signed up for it when you became a Christian. And when you joined Sovereign Grace Church, you started to link arms with us. And we now run together for the glory of the Lord. The Bible's clear that the Father's at the end. He's waiting with arms open wide to receive us. The cloud of witnesses are looking on. All the saints that have gone before us are peering over the heavenly realms, clapping and cheering us on, calling out our names and our numbers and encouraging us to keep running. And the great heavenly realms, the angels, as it talks about in Ephesians chapter 3, the angels are looking on to see the manifold wisdom of God as we run and as we unite together for the glory of the Lord. And as we do that, they see the manifold wisdom of God and turn and worship the Father all the more. And so as we run this race, we have the Father and the cloud of witnesses and the angels peering on. And the crowd around us, for us, is Sydney. People who don't even understand what the race is about, that are uninterested in the race, but desperately need the saving grace of Jesus Christ to touch their lives. And the Bible calls us as Christians to run the race, to endure the race, to strain forward, to press on, forgetting what lies behind, But press on to the goal, to the upward call that we have in Christ Jesus, to keep running well together for the glory of the Lord. And yet, in and through the entirety of our race, we have one who is completely and utterly at war with us, the devil and his forces. He wants to destroy us. He wants to blind us. He wants to cast doubt over us. He wants to tempt us. He wants to accuse us. He wants to devour us. He wants to bring us down. He wants to bring you down as an individual. He wants to bring you down in your families. He wants to bring us down as a local church. It's just a fact. It comes with the fact that we get signed up for the race. But there he is in everybody's ear. And he schemes against us. He schemes against us with distraction as we're running our race. He wants to distract us from the race. He wants to pull us over and distract us with our past. Surely you can't be running, knowing who you are. How dare you even be a part of that group running? You know what you've done this week. That that isn't the style of a runner. He wants to distract us with our present. Things that pull us away in the here and now from really running well for Jesus whether that be kids or money or pursuit of wealth or success, the list goes on, but he wants to keep firing those darts in to pull us away, to distract us from the race. And he wants to distract us away from the people too. Pretending that these people beyond us in Sydney are just people. They don't need anything. They're fine just as they are. Leave them alone. Look at them. They're smiling. Satan wants to distract us away from the race. He also wants to scheme with us in complacency that we would all too quickly forsake meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Usually the individuals that are in the habit of doing that never feel that that applies to them. That's the devil's scheme. I'll pull them away from the church and I'll convince them they're fine, it's just for a season. That fits you on the category. It usually means you're listening to this message on CD. Yes, that's you. And then the scheme of compromise. 
The scheme of compromise. So instead of dealing with things, glory for the Lord. Instead of standing together, united as a local church, Satan convinces us to compromise on the way. You don't need to do that. You don't need to work that through with that person. You're just making a big deal out of it. Just leave them alone. And actually, he forces that bitterness to go underground in our heart. A bitterness that grows and grows, and before you know it, becomes then division and divisiveness in the local church. Our friends, we have an evil one who we fight against on this race. The devil and his forces fight in clear opposition to God's plan and his people. But here's what we learn in Ephesians chapter 6 and verses 10 through 20. Here's the good news of Ephesians chapter 6. What we learn is that although the devil and his forces fight in clear opposition to God's plan and his people, God in his grace has given us all we need to stand firm against him. God has equipped us as saints. He knows full well that we're in a race, and he knows full well that Satan is going to be seeking to get us and distract us and cause us to be compromised and complacent. So he tells us exactly what he's given us for the race, the armor of God. Seven things that he's given us to help us run the race, seven things that he's given us so that we can stand firm against the devil's schemes. And it's those seven things then that I want to draw to your attention today. Seven things that we're to put on as individuals. Seven things that we're to stand together in in armor against the evil one so that we can run this race well for the glory of the Lord. I will try my best to make each point short. Otherwise, we'll be here till half past three. But there are seven points, and I need you to understand each and every point. So what has he given us? What has has God given us for the race so we can stand against Satan and his forces? Well, number one, verse 14... He's given us the belt of truth. He says, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. You know, as Paul writes this, he's already in chains. And what that would mean is he would have around him nearly all the time a Roman soldier. And so even as he pens this, he'd be looking at the Roman soldier. And he's aware as he writes to the Ephesian church, they'd be well aware what a Roman soldier looks like. And so he's using this imagery that how they go into battle against their enemies, we go into battle against our enemy, Satan. And what is true of a Roman soldier is a Roman soldier would have a big, heavy belt around their waist that would be absolutely essential. See, they would have a big, heavy leather belt that would provide strength for the soldier's inner core. That's why you see weightlifters use it as well. They have a big, heavy belt that's strapped to them, and it pulls their core in and straightens their back and enables them to fight the fight better. And also they would use this big heavy belt because many times Roman soldiers would wear a tunic underneath all their armor. And so they would pull it up and then they would attach the belt and that's what would keep everything in place. If that belt isn't in there, the tunic's on the floor, they're going to be tripping over all over the place. So they would wear a belt to hold the tunic in its place and to strengthen their backs for the battle. Well, as we join this battle and as we join this race, we need a belt like that too. A belt that will hold us firm, that will strengthen our inner core, and a belt that will hold everything else in place to ensure that we not be tripping up all the time on our race. And so God gives us, by his grace, the belt of truth. A belt of truth that we're to fasten around our waist to strengthen our inner core to ensure that we not trip up all the time on this race and get distracted by numerous different things that we just feel God's telling us. 
We attach this belt and we know then this is the truth that I'm to live by. This is the direction I'm meant to run in. This is what it's all about for the glory of God. And that truth, my friends, is, is this word. It's what it says in this word. And it's not just like reading this word. What he's really talking about specifically is what we call doctrine. Doctrine, if you want to know what doctrine is, is really what does the Bible teach on any given topic? So what does the Bible teach from Genesis through Revelation about the church? What does the Bible teach about God? What does the Bible teach about Jesus? What does the Bible teach about marriage? What does the Bible teach about heaven? What does the Bible teach about hell? What does the Bible teach about spiritual gifts? And so on and so forth. That's what doctrines are. What does the Bible teach as a whole on very specific things? And what Paul is telling us is that the greatest gift God has given us is attaching those doctrines around our waist. Because they're what provide lines so we know where the race even goes. They're the belt that will ensure that our tunic doesn't fall down and we get tripped up along the way because we know his word and his word is a lamp unto our feet. The belt of truth then is the study of this word, giving ourselves to understanding what it teaches us about our lives and what we're called to do. Bruce Milne says this about doctrine and truth. He says, why then is the study of doctrine so vital? Firstly, as a matter of plain fact, every Christian is a theologian. Once we have grasped this, our duty is to become the best theologians we can be for the glory of God. As our understanding of God and his ways are clarified and deepened through studying the book he has given us for that purpose, the Bible. Secondly, getting doctrine right is the key to getting everything else right. If we are to know who God is, who we are, and what God wants of us, we need to study Scripture. That means it's teaching as a whole, and that means doctrine. This holds true for every single area of the Christian life. At every point, listen, at every point, right living begins with right thinking. That's profound. At every point, right living begins with right thinking thinking. That's absolutely right. If we're going to run well on this race, then even right running starts with right thinking. If we don't know what the Bible teaches on things, we're just going to run. (laughs) We just don't know what's going on. And yet we get that belt on and we know I'm meant to go that way. And so even though Satan's trying to pull me that way, I don't care. I'm going that way. Because that's the belt of truth that is around my waist. That is the belt of truth that is strengthening my core. Sinclair Ferguson then says this. He says, The conviction that Christian doctrine matters is one of the most important growth points of the Christian life. Amen to that. So often when you encounter people who are immature in their faith, they usually don't want to read because they don't feel like they need it. They get tired all reading. It's so boring. Yeah. So is training. All training's boring. But that's how you get fit. And we're in the race of our lives. We're in the battle of our lives. And so the first thing God says is, listen, if you're serious then about the race, if you're serious about running, if you're serious about running in a way where the Father will receive you with open arms, where the cloud of witnesses will clap and cheer, then you must attach around your waist the belt of truth. It's what will keep your back straight. It's what will stop you tripping over along the way. My friends, if you don't study doctrine then, or you haven't, 
then I'd have to say for the first 23 years of my life, I didn't either. I just want to encourage you in a couple of things. One great book by Josh Harris is called Dug Down Deep. It's just a great basic book to start helping us understand what does the Bible teach on various issues. Knowing God by J.R. Packer is another one. What does the Bible teach us about God and his ways? And then build up to Bible Doctrine by um, Wayne Grudem. It's one of the best books I've ever read. If you read just that book and grasped that, you would be attaching the belt of truth each and every day of your lives. It helps us see what does the whole Bible teach on key issues. It's the belt of truth that will help us. God then, first and foremost, to stand against the devil's schemes, has given us the belt of truth. That's not all he's given us. Number two, the breastplate of righteousness. It says there in the rest of verse 14, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. If you know Roman soldier with a brain would go into battle without his breastplate. In battle, there is a whole load of things thrown at you. There's swords coming at you. There's arrows coming at you. There's javelins coming at you. Loads of weaponry would be coming around you. And then so the soldier, the Roman soldier, was given a thorax or a breastplate made of tough leather and metal. And it would have the job of being stuck over his chest to protect his vital organs and in particular his heart. Because if you get an arrow in your leg... You'll probably be all right. You'll limp a bit, but you'll probably be all right. You get an arrow through your heart, you're dead. And so you needed a breastplate to protect you, to protect your vital organs and your heart. And the truth is, as Christians, so do we. And the reason why we so need one is because our hearts are vulnerable. We must understand that. In the Bible, our hearts are the seat of our passions the seat of our emotions, and the seat of our feelings. So much that we do, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So much of what we do comes from our heart. Our heart is the home of our passions and our emotions and our feelings. And that's why, because Satan knows that, most of his fiery attacks are aimed at our hearts. He wants to pull our emotions in. He wants to pull our passions in. He wants to affect our feelings. And so he's created a world system and a culture in which he seeks to confuse our emotions and thereby pervert our affections and our morals and our loyalties and our passions, keeping distracting us and pulling us in. He seeks then to undermine holy living and tempt us to instead to immorality and greed and envy and hate and every other form of malice. And in the midst of it all, then, he seeks to erode truth and tempt us then just to smile at our sin. As if it's no big deal, right? And maybe even as if we've been victims to it. What can I do? It's just the way I'm wired. Satan loves that. He loves to pervert our heart, knowing that if he can pervert it enough, you'll stop running. You'll get distracted with so many other things. He's even designed the world then to entice us in, to distract us from the greatest race that we're all on. And so God in his grace... He's given us something for that. He's given us the breastplate of righteousness that we're to put on, that we're to attach to our bodies. And this righteousness, it isn't the imputed righteousness that we get in justification, though that would be valid. This is the practical righteousness that Paul has been going on about in chapter 4 and chapter 5 of the book of Ephesians. 
This is a practical righteousness, a functional righteousness that comes, if you remember from chapter 4, from the divine changing room. The process of putting off our sin, our former manner of life, being renewed in our mind and putting on the new self. He says, putting on the new self, uh, verse 24, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So put off the old self. That's who you used to be. Be renewed in your mind, understanding that you're now in a great race and put on the new self, this functional righteousness before the Lord. And he tells us in chapter 4, 27, that if we do this, it will give no opportunity to the devil. Do you get it? We don't just go to growth group and seek to change for the glory of the Lord so that we can become more like Christ. True that though is. We go to growth group seeking to change because as we do that, we are attaching the breastplate of righteousness and ensuring that Satan has no foothold in our lives. Nothing to distract us away from the mission. Nothing to pull us away from the great race we're on. How kind of the Lord then to give us that, don't you think? We don't just get a life group and growth group and seek to change so that we can become more like Christ. We do all those things to protect us against the evil one on the race. And in my book, that just ups the ante on their importance all the more. They're vital. It's vital that we have people in our lives that we can open up to. Why? So that Satan has no foothold into our lives. It's not all he's given us, though. Number three, the shoes of the gospel of peace. It says there in verse 15, And shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. You know, a Roman soldier never knew where they were going to be. Are they going to be fighting in Italy? Or are they going to be fighting in Northern Ireland? There would be lots of different places that they would get sent to to defend their country and advance their country. And so a Roman soldier needed a shoe that would be able to cope with many different terrains that would be tough and durable no matter what and that would have good grip no matter what so that wherever they found themselves on whatever surface they stood on, there was always good grip so that they could stand strong and fight. And in our race and in our battle, we need shoes like that too. Shoes that are tough and durable. Shoes that have good grip on them. And so God gives us the shoes of the gospel of peace. See, the devil's schemes are many and varied. And he's going to lead us along whole different terrains at different times. Some of that's just life. We go through different seasons in life, and often those seasons look like different terrains that are often unfamiliar. Usually in my life, it's just when I get used to terrain that my terrain changes. You know what I'm saying? Something happens and you realize, oh, this looks a bit different now to like the last season. Satan knows that. He knows what's coming. So he's happy to sit and wait and wait for you around the corner in the next terrain. And God then in his grace gives us shoes to ensure that we can stand firm. Shoes that will give us good good grip whatever happens and they're shoes that are called the shoes of the gospel of peace that we need to tie on to our feet each and every day of our lives because they remind us of who we are and whose we are and what this is all about. Who we are before the Lord as people who have been forgiven and redeemed, knowing that heaven is our home. Whose we are, we've been adopted by the King of kings and Lord of lords. My life has been purchased with a price. And what then my life and your life is all about? Namely, this race. It's not about the next 80 years of my life. It's about the next 80 millenniums to come after it that this 80 years is about. 
And it's when we attach those shoes of the gospel of peace to our feet each and every day of our lives that we run with passion, we run with, with, with striving. And we do it because we're reminded each and every day, this is who I am. I'm a child of Jesus Christ, called to run for Jesus Christ. Lord, help me to run for that day. And yet when we take those shoes off, we find ourselves just unsteady all the time. I just don't know what I'm meant to be doing with my life. And Man, that looks pretty good. I'm going to have a look over there. And Those doubts feel so much more stronger. God in his grace calls us to put on the shoes of the gospel of peace each and every day of our lives. That's why Jerry Bridges says we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. What he's saying there is every day put on the shoes of the gospel of peace. Because you'll forget. You'll be drawn in all the time by the evil one. So put your shoes on. Now God also in his grace then gives us something for our arm as well. And I love what he gives us. He gives us the shield of faith. Verse 16. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. I love this. See, one of my favorite films, um, which probably tell you something about me, is Gladiator. I love Gladiator. It's amazing. You know, and if I'd lived in that era, I'd like to think that I'd be one of them. I probably would have just run off wedding myself, but I would like to think I'd be there. It's just an amazing film. And there's this great scene right at the start of Gladiator, if you remember, where the opposition draw their bows and arrows, they light them, and then it comes over and there are just like thousands and thousands of arrows coming to the Roman army. And they don't seem too freaked out about it. Why do they not seem too freaked out about it? Well, because they have these massive shields. And as soon as they see them coming, the captain of the guard crouch! And they stand behind the shields. And every one of them is fine. Because these arrows, these fiery darts, smash into the shield and then just fall off. Every Roman soldier, upon being a soldier, would be given a scutum, a shield. A four foot high, two and a half foot wide, massive shield that would be made with two layers of laminate wood covered with linen and hide and then would be bound from top to bottom with iron. And so when fiery arrows were launched, the Roman soldier was always fine. They would just hide behind it. And they knew as they hid behind it, the fiery arrows would come, but they would always be fine. Well, God in his grace has given us a shield like that too, and it is the shield of faith. A shield that we can align ourselves behind at times. A shield that we can stand behind at times when we are aware that Satan is launching his attacks on us. My friends, pastorally, I want you to know there will be seasons when Satan will without doubt launch his barrage of fiery darts at you. At you individually. Whatever reason, he's gone for you. And it's coming. It's what he does. And so we will face in our lives repeated rallies of the darts of temptation from him. Temptation to lust. Temptation to sensuality. Temptation to selfishness and idolatry as we get distracted with a whole load of things. Temptation to complacency and compromise. Temptation to run away from what he's really calling us to do in our lives and temptation to doubt 
more often than not, in the midst of trials, that's where the doubts come. Have you noticed that? In the midst of the difficulties that we face, we go into work and we we lose our job. We've been working hard at it, but all of a sudden our, our job's gone. We go to the doctor and we think it's probably going to be okay. But then they tell us, you know, actually, you may have cancer. I don't know what this is going to look like for you. The kid that we've been reaching out to for years and seeking to help in the gospel and they've got to 16, 17, 18 and they said, Mom and Dad, I love you, but the Jesus that you serve, I'm not interested in him at all. My friends, that's more often than not when Satan launches those arrows. Arrows of doubt. Arrows of doubt that he wants to rip into your heart with. Arrows that say things like this. Is God really in control? Is God really in control in the midst of this trial? In the midst of all you're going through in your health or with that child, is he really in control? Because if he is, then surely he doesn't love you and care for you. If he really loved you, he wouldn't allow this to happen. And the doubts just keep coming and coming and coming. Usually when we're lying on our beds, we are facing a barrage of darts. Well, God's given us an answer for that. And it's called the shield of faith. A shield that we're to stand behind at times, knowing that we are facing the doubts of the enemy. And what you find is on the inside of that shield, there are different words inscribed. Words like this, faithful, refuge, shield, trustworthy, generous, kind, loving, strong, powerful, sovereign ruler of all. There's times when we need to crouch behind that shield, not knowing what's going on, not knowing what's going to happen, but trusting God has me. He will never leave me nor forsake me. He loves me. He is powerful. He is sovereign, even though his ways are higher than my ways and I don't understand what he's doing. He does love me, even though I sometimes don't feel it, but I know it because I saw what he did in sending his son to Calvary in my place. There's times when we must stand behind the shield of faith. And how kind of the Lord to give us it, don't you think? How kind of the Lord to give us a shield and to give others around us that they can say, hey, you hide behind my shield as well. Let's stand together against these. God's got you. He holds you. God's given us all we need to stand against the devil's schemes and for our heads. He's given us a shield for our heads as well, namely... Verse 17a, the helmet of salvation. So what he says, he says, and take the helmet of salvation. He wants us to take on the helmet that God has given us for our heads. See, Satan in the Bible is known as the father of lies, the accuser of the brethren. That's the church. He wants to accuse you all the time. One of his weapons is to accuse you and lie to you. And one of the things he constantly wants to accuse you of and lie to you about is your assurance of salvation. He wants to do all he can to scupper your race by undermining your assurance of salvation. Asking you questions about your past, asking you questions about your present. Surely if you were a Christian, you wouldn't do that. He is the accuser of the brethren and the father of lies. And the truth is, It's not only our hearts under attack, although they are the primary form of attack. Our heads are often under attack as well. And our our heads face the weapons of condemnation, 
of discouragement and doubt. Do you know, Satan wants you to feel condemned. He knows full well that Jesus has paid the price of your sin in full. But he doesn't want you to know that because you'll run the race well then. So he wants to convince you that maybe that's not true. Just like he did in the Garden of Eden to Adam and Eve. Did God really say that? It's exactly what he still does today to Christians. Did God really say that? Are you sure you're forgiven? Would you even behave like that if you were forgiven? I'm not sure. They're the darts of the evil one. Satan wants us to feel condemned, and so he wants to regularly remind us and accuse us of our past sins, our past failings, things we've even done this week that would be against the Lord. And what he wants to do then is add to our condemnation discouragement and doubt. And he wants to do it because he knows if he can keep distracting you with condemnation and discouragement and doubt, before you know it, your sprint would go to a jog and your jog would go to a walk and you would start to wonder if you're in the race at all. You are, but he wants to convince you you're not. Well, God gives us a remedy for that and it's called the helmet of salvation. Our friends, when Satan tempts us to despair and tells us of the guilt within, upward we must look, who, who put him there, the end of all our sin. We must look to Jesus Christ, who's dealt with our sin in full. If you're condemned, then that means that he was not condemned for you. If you're feeling guilty, then you must believe then that he did not take the guilt for you. But he did. He was condemned for you in full. All of your sin, past, present, and future, cost Jesus Christ his life. You are guilty in the normal, but through faith, he took the guilt for you. He drank the cup of God's wrath to the full in your place. When Satan tempts you to despair and tells you of the guilt within, you must look up and see him there who made an end of all your sin. And as you're looking, you must put the helmet of salvation on your head. Because those doubts will still keep coming. You know what's also true? It says in James chapter 4, verse 7, if you resist the devil, then he will flee from you. Once he knows he can't get you on this, he gets bored and goes after somebody else. He's not, he's not infinite in power like God. He's limited. There's only one of him. The forces aren't infinite either. So when we stand firm against the devil's schemes, he just doesn't keep going and going and going. He's aware, I'm not going to get you. I'm going to try something else. We must put on the helmet of salvation to protect our minds against the darts of the evil one. John MacArthur says it this way. He says, The helmet of salvation is that great hope of final salvation that gives us confidence and assurance that our present struggle with Satan will not last forever and that we will be victorious in the end. We are in a race that we simply cannot lose. We have a certain hope, a living hope, as Peter calls it, that God, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and which will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Listen, our helmet of salvation is the certain prospect of heaven, our ultimate salvation to come, which we have as an anchor for our soul. How cool is that? You put on the helmet of salvation and what you realize is he has you. He's got you. 
He's never going to leave you nor forsake you. He died that you might have life and that in abundance. Through his death, you are forgiven. You are redeemed. You are adopted. Heaven is your home. And when you place it on your head then, those arrows before you know just go ding, 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 because you know the truth. I'm not believing that. Standing firm on the gospel. I've got the shoes of the gospel and peace on and on my head I've got the helmet of salvation. You're not getting me on that. I'm going to keep running for the glory of the Lord. How kind of the Lord then to give us the helmet of salvation. And how kind of him to give us, number six, the sword of the Spirit. I love this. It says, and take on the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, one thing you never see in any film or in real life would be a Roman soldier just running into battle with their armor on. That would be weird. So no weapon, but just, hey, you can't hurt me. You know, that would be a bit odd, really. That's a bit strange. They would go into battle with one mother of a sword. And this is how they do damage. They would use their sword to fight. They would use the sword to defend themselves, and they'd use this sword to fight. Well, God in his grace has given us a weapon just like that, the sword of the Spirit, this thing that we have in our hands. This is powerful. Sometimes I think we disbelieve its power, but it is powerful. And if we're going to run well in the race, if we're going to fight Satan in the battle, we need this word. We must have this word. It's our lifeline. It's everything we need. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, we read, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Isn't that incredible? It's powerful. Sharper than any double-edged sword. There's very sharp double-edged swords, I can assure you. But this is sharper than all that. This is powerful. This can cut through things in a moment. 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17 says, All Scripture, all of it, Genesis through Revelation, is God-breathed and powerful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent and equipped, listen, for every good work. I think sometimes we massively underestimate this Bible. And so people go through challenges and they go through problems and they walk through issues, and they don't dream for a moment of opening this book. Whereas 2 Timothy 3.16 says that if I read this, what I find in here is is necessary for every good work. That's all-inclusive. Everything we need in our lives is here. You're walking through marriage issues? Okay, everything you need is in here. You're walking through parenting issues? Everything you need is in here. You're not quite sure what to do on the race? Everything you need is in here. You're not quite sure what to do in your, in your relational struggles? Everything you need is in here. You're going through challenges about different things? Oh, I better go see a psychotherapist. You can do, but everything you need is in here. Everything, everything is in here so that you may be competently equipped for every good work. Don't argue with me on that. Argue with God on that. This is powerful. This has everything we need in it for every good work. It's powerful. Thomas Guthrie, then the Scottish pastor, says this. He says, the Bible is quite clearly an armory of heavenly weapons a laboratory of infallible medicines, and a mine of exhaustless wealth. 
It is a guidebook for every road, a chart for every sea, a medicine for every malady, and a balm for every wound. Listen to this. Rob us of our Bible, and our sky has lost its sun. How beautiful. Rob us of our Bible as Christians, and our sky has lost its sun. This is everything we need. Everything we need for the race is in here. Everything we need for each and every step as we try to work out, where am I meant to go? What am I meant to do? Everything we need is in here. Everything will help us. It's all here somewhere to help us each and every walk of the way. Word of God is powerful. It brings life where there's death. It brings light where there's darkness. It brings truth where there's lies. The Bible can bring joy where there's sadness and hope where there's despair and success where there's failures. The Bible alone can bring maturity where there's childishness, growth where there's stagnation, and direction where there is total confusion. This Word of God is powerful. And that's why we must be a people and as a church that we do what Paul tells us to do in verse 17 and therefore take it up. See, this is a powerful weapon. But it was never meant to be a showpiece sword in our home. You know what I'm saying? I remember going to somebody's house once, and uh, this was years ago, and, and they had one of those samurai swords on the wall. I thought, that's so, I love that, because I would have loved one of them myself. You just think, oh, I don't know, there's just something aggressive and angry about it. You're like, oh, yes, that's just the sword. What are you saying? You know, it's just quite, quite nerve-wracking. So they had this samurai sword on the wall. But what was curious to me is they never take it down. It's never seen any battle. Gathers dust. Like, oh, oh, nice. And then I think too many Christians do the same thing with this. This is given to us by the Lord to run into battle with. It's, it's powerful. Satan cannot stand against this word. Everything we need is in this word. And so we go running into battle, but we're like, oh, it's a bit heavy, a bit tired, don't like reading. So off we go running into battle by ourselves. And you just think, what are you doing? This is the sword. This is what God's given us. This is the power. This is everything we need. This is all we have. We lose this, then our race has lost its son. We must ensure that the Bible in our homes, if we're serious about the race, and we're serious about the battle, we must ensure that the Bible does not become a showpiece sword in our home, gathering dust. We take it off the wall once a week, and we take it to church. Don't know what it says. And then we take it home on Sunday, and think, that was nice. And carry on with our lives. What a tragedy. No wonder then for so many Christians, they feel so weak in the battle. They don't know what to do in the battle. The sword does damage when it's in our hands and when it's in our hearts. We must be a people of God's word. We must stand on God's word. We must fight together on God's word. We must read it and meditate on it and memorize it and study it. God has given us all we need. And here's the final thing he's given us. My favorite thing by a long way. And the seven, the Lord has given us himself. Look at verse 18. And praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to that end keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. You know, through prayer, incredible things can and do happen. 
One of the things I loved about growing up in home with my mum and dad is they didn't teach us a lot of doctrine, to be honest with you. But what they did teach us a lot about how great God is and how he can do anything. And if we pray to him, he will answer and he can change things in a moment and he can sustain people in a moment. So we would pray as a family, believing God can change things for this person. He can break in on people's lives. And my parents understood then what Paul is trying to talk to us about here is that we pray because when we pray, we make our requests known to the very God that we learn about in Sunday school all our lives. The one who opens the Red Sea. The one who in his grace spins the galaxies. The one who numbers the stars and breathes them out and names them, sustains them so that not one is missing. The one who says to the tides, this far and no further. The one who heals broken bones. The one who brings people back to life. The one who can take dead bones in a desert and bring them to life and have them to be an army for the Lord. The one who can make five fishes and loaves turn into things that can feed 5,000 people. The one who can walk on water. The one who can still a storm in the moment. You know the one that we learn about out there? As adults, we should be all the more informed to realize then, through prayer, I get to be with him. I get to access the great King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who says he's listening to me and who will operate towards me with all power. And so it's no wonder then that Paul tells us to pray at all times with all kinds of prayers for all the saints, with all perseverance. Because he's aware through prayer, we're making our requests known to the maker of heaven and earth who is listening to us. You know, what an incredible piece of armory then, don't you think? What is it? The piece of armory is the Lord himself. Access to your maker. Access to your sustainer. Access to the powerful one of all. James Montgomery Boyce then says this in response. He says, it is not just that we are to pray. We are to pray always. That is at all times of the day and sometimes even at night. Paul does not mean that we are to do nothing but pray. Of course not. We would get nothing else done. And Paul himself did not do this. But he does mean that prayer is to be a natural and consistent part of our lives. It is not to be relegated just to special seasons or special days, no. We are to be a people of prayer. My friends, we are. John Piper says that prayer equals dependence on God. And if we're serious about running this race, if we're serious about pleasing the Lord and running this race for his glory, we need dependence on him. Because more than anything, we need him. What you discover in verse 18 is in this armor and in this battle, we have him. My friends, I want to encourage you then as a church, whether you realize it or not, we are in a great race together. We stand together as a local church and we are in the race of our lives and the battle of our lives. The Father is waiting at the end to call us home and receive us into glory. The cloud of witnesses are looking on, wondering what is Sovereign Grace Church going to do next? Ready to applaud and cheer us along our way. The angels in the heavenly realms are peering and looking on to see where they see the manifold wisdom of God so they can worship the Lord all the more. And we're called then to run the race of our lives for his glory, forgetting what lies behind, but pressing on for the prize, the upward call of God in Christ. 
to live for him, to worship him, to give our whole lives for his glory. And so I want to encourage you then. Would we run together in life? Because we need each other. We need each other to encourage us. We need each other to care for us. We need one another to grow. We need to be around one another so we can stir one another up to love and good deeds, both us being on the receiving end and the giving end of that. And would we run together in mission, being aware that as the crowd looks on, uninterested, they're the very people we're running to. They're the people that need the gospel. People that are presently blind and dead in their transgressions and sins. That's why they're not interested, because they're dead. But we're called to brandish the gospel and take the gospel, which is the only thing that can bring them from death to life. Would we run together in mission? And would we run together in giving? Making it possible to do all that we sense that God is calling us to do in our race as a local church. And as we run then together, freshly aware that we're in battle, would we run together in his armor? Would we fasten on the belt of truth? Would we fasten on the breastplate of righteousness? Do we attach the shoes of the gospel of peace and the shield of faith? Would it be present in all circumstances? Would we put on the helmet of salvation? And would we have in our hands and our hearts the sword of the Spirit? And would we bathe all things we do as a local church in prayer? Because listen, the devil and his forces fight in clear opposition to God's plan and his people. It's just a fact. He hates us. But God in his grace has given us all that we need to stand against his schemes. So let's put on the armor, my friends. And let's run this race well for the glory of God. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that as we gather as your people, freshly sobered by the race that we're in, we then quickly discover that you've given us everything we need, not just in bulk form, but in minute detail. You're aware of Satan's tactics. You're aware of his weapons. And so you've given us everything we need to stand against them. And so, Lord, would you help us then and aid us to be a people then who put on the armor of God and run the race of our lives. Lord, help us not to get distracted by our past, Help us not to get distracted by the world and the present. Help us to have eyes to see this world how you see this world. Not full of bridges and opera houses and work situations and skyscrapers, but full of people with flesh and blood hearts. Lord, help us to feel towards Sydney the way you feel towards Sydney as you see the people who are lost. And Lord, help us to run to them. Lord, did you hate us as a local church then to eagerly maintain the unity? Would we stand together as one and in the weeks and months and years ahead, Lord, help us to run for your glory. And in you and through you, would great things happen in the midst of our race. For your glory, Lord. Amen.